Hey, this is Mike Goldberg, the voice of Bellator MMA. Join us right now for MMA FanCast. Welcome to MMA FanCast. I'm Luke Payson, joined, as always, by my co-host, Jim. And tonight, we have a very special guest with us, Sean Shorty Rack Santella. Welcome, Sean. Are you there? What's up, guys? How are you? Hey, welcome to the program. For our audience members, look him up right now. Google his name. Check it out. He is... Um, has an incredible uh, fight record of 22 wins, seven losses, and is the number one ranked on topology fighter, not fighting. Pretty much everywhere, right? Exactly. Not fighting in a major organization. Um, number one in the East Coast, number one in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, number one in the entire United States. Um, he is the man. Um, and if you've never seen a picture of him, he fights with um, a bright pink mohawk. He's a he's a great fighter um, and an even better person. So we're we're excited to have Sean on on our uh, show tonight. Sean, you just defended the CFFC title last Friday, um, just under a week ago, um, and that's Cage Fury Fighting Championships. Um, how many before we talk about that fight? How many offhand? How many regional? belts have you won how many title uh belts have you won or defended in your career i know it's a bunch uh i have 13 belts total there you go there so, it is and i have i, I told believe- jim before i thought it was 12 so you were you're one over what i thought baker's doesn't go ahead yes and i've defended most of them um multiple times and i had the privilege of watching you defend the pa cage fight uh, belt um, last March, I think it was March 31st, 2018. I was actually in the audience to see you uh, fight. You're an incredible fighter, big, big crowd favorite. Um, just, just you bring a lot to the cage. Now let's talk about the fight you were just in um, for CFFC Friday night. Uh, kind of walk us through that fight. Um, how, you know, how did everything go for you? And obviously you got the the defense. Congratulations, champ. But kind of give us a, a quick review we like to interview fighters after a fight about uh sort of their after action review so give us your after action report on that fight um i mean i thought it was a great fight it was a dominating performance um Mm -hmm. i i think i could have finished the fight i kind of played it a tad bit safe i think i gave him yeah a little too much respect in his jujitsu um Mm. but i knew he was a dangerous jujitsu guy he just fought one of my good friends tommy espinoza and was was able to take his back every round and pretty much dominate position wise, and it's yeah. because Tommy made a couple basic errors, and I didn't want to make those same errors because a lot of jujitsu practitioners, all you need is one mistake and they capitalize on yeah. and the fight's over. Oh yeah, you know, at least that's how yeah, I we, think yeah. when I'm fighting, you know. 
Sure, and, absolutely. And well, that's actually something we're going to talk about later because you are known for your jujitsu. You're mm-hmm. a teacher of jujitsu. You're a black belt in jujitsu. Um, you do seminars in jujitsu. But I like the fact that you are still not arrogant enough. You, you respect it as jujitsu, despite the fact that you have great jujitsu. Is that something you like to do coming into a fight? Uh, respect their strengths? Yeah, well, I mean, as a, a seasoned vet with 30 professional yeah. fights, yeah. I have yeah. great coaches and great corners, and we come up with a game plan. We address our opponent's strengths, and then we, mm-hmm. you know, we match it up and we see where the kink yeah. is in their armor, you know, and, right. you know, uh, regardless of, you know, what I think, I'm always going to address where they're strong at. I'm going to put myself you know, in mm-hmm. their strongest area. And that's where I'm going to work out of most of my camp. And sure. that's pretty much what I did. You know, I trained with some of the best guys in the world and I worked every training session after sparring on certain positions that he was strong at. If I can turn his mm-hmm. strongest area into a strong area for me, you kind of take, you take the heart rate out of your opponent, you know? Right. So I really concentrated yeah, he doesn't on have, he doesn't have his safety net. You're taking right. away his safety net, his go to exactly. like whatever his his backup plan, you know. Yep. Um abso- absolutely. Um yeah. and so now another thing about that fight was was this a, another twenty five minute fight? It was it was twenty minutes. So um what CFFC okay. has done yeah. is um I don't I don't think it's recently, but over the last three or four years they got rid of five rounds and they made it a four round title fight with a sudden victory round. If at the end of four rounds. Yeah. yeah. And I honestly yeah. think that is because of some of the heavyweights had such such crappy performances and it was, a, it was actually hard yeah. to watch that they got rid of the five rounds. So I have fought five rounds six times before yeah. though. So yeah, I, I, re- I remember that you have a lot of, yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that. What is it like? Because you've been such a dominant champ, uh, both, yeah, I mean, many, many, um, I mean, 13 belts and defended a bunch of them. Um, uh, I think you said all of them. So I'm always curious, what do you think, what do you think it's like to have that much experience cage time in championship rounds, whether it's the four round fights, the five round fights, how much do you give credit to yourself uh, physically and also mentally knowing that you have fought more cage minutes than, than probably the majority of your opponents because you've been in so many title fights. Um, I think it's huge. You know, I think, I think having yeah. the experience and having that cage time is definitely a huge advantage, especially against a prospect coming in. You know there's going to be pressure on them. Um, yeah. Regardless, people say, you know, all right, well, the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you can win it's still a lot of pressure for a, for an up and coming guy to come out in a, his first main event on fight pass. And yeah. perform. You know, I've been right. there done that multiple times. I fought top level guys, you know, so I have that, that mental advantage of knowing I'm going to come out there and perform, you know? So yeah, I, I absolutely is, is a lot for some people. Um, and it's something that you can get used to. And some people just don't get used to it. Well, something you mentioned about your opponents, when you mentioned about your, you know, the opponents you face, it, it's a cool thing. You actually pointed this out on your Facebook page, which I thought was great, which was that your last two opponents, which you defeated both of them, your last two opponents 
um, had a combined record before they faced you of 17 and two. And it, it's, I, I want to point that out. You did a great job on Facebook. I want to point that out to our audience because with your record, you're, you're not, you're not beating up tomato cans as they say, yeah. I mean, you're beating up guys that are good that have incredible records, some undefeated, maybe only one or two losses. Um, and you fought guys that they've flown in from Brazil and all over the world, right? Yeah. I, I don't turn down over, fights. over your career. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't turn down fights. And when I fight for a title, you know, uh, the, the promotions I fight for, um, aren't, aren't just like grabbing some random person off the yeah. street. They look for the best possible matchup and they, mm-hmm. they bring it in. I don't get any, any pick me fights. You know, they tell right, me who I right. fight and I, as long as they make weight, we fight, you know, I'm not and looking for how many times is that? To, to, I, I, I love the, sorry to cut you off. I love the attitude that you'll fight anybody. And I do think it's important. We talk about this on the show a lot because you cover a lot of uh, regional fights. It's very important to build your skill level and test your skill level. Too many guys, and I, we're not going to say names, but you know, too many guys at the regional level get great records because they're beating guys with either losing records or barely 500 records. And then when they make it to a bigger promotion or a, or a tougher fight, they, they don't have the skills they need. Now, something you brought up was you fight at 125 and you said, as long as your opponent makes weight, is that an issue for you or, or has it been an issue for some of your opponents as far as making weight? It's been an issue for, for a decent amount of my opponents. And yeah. I think moving forward, people try to use that as a strategy where, you know, if they come in overweight, they're going to have a size advantage over me and maybe they don't have to cut so yeah. much weight. And a win over me, regardless whether they make weight or not, yeah. it still boosts them up, you know, levels. You know, so it, it comes to where yeah. I have to kind of be a little smarter. If somebody doesn't make weight, that's the only time that I yeah. hesitate about taking the fight because then it's almost like yeah. they're cheating. When you don't make weight, you're yeah, it's technically- intentional. It's intentional. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, especially yeah. when these guys come in and they're not sucked out, you know, and right. I know how it feels to be sucked out. I wrestled when I was younger. I know being around, you know, the sport for a long time. I yeah. know how people are when they're dehydrated. Some of these guys come in and they're eight pounds overweight. They're actually at the next yeah. weight. And then they wonder yeah. why yeah. like I'm turning down the fight. And it's like, are, did you even try to make weight? You know? Yeah. Well, it is important. You brought it up. It's important to recognize in the fight world. And, and this is something that comes up a lot at the UFC level at all levels is yeah. You, you, promoters want fighters to have bravado and be like, Oh, he weighs eight pounds more than me. And I'm, you know, but I'll fight him anyhow. But you know what, that if you were to win great. And if you were to lose, it's on your record. It's not like they put an asterisk next to it and say the dude missed weight and you know, shorty Rack's still the man, you know, you could still lose your, your, you could still lose that way. And I think it's something that professionally um, I don't like to see, fights still go on. I mean, obviously as a fan, I like to see fights still go on after some, you know, after an issue, but I think you're exactly right. I think it's cheating. And and I think a big part of the pressure, particularly UFC puts on people is somebody's overweight and you still fight them. And then there's an advantage. So uh, I I think you're taking the right stand on that. And also uh, weight issue is an issue probably at every division, except maybe heavyweight, but 125 is, is really defined by uh, weight cuts and actually the champ champ 125 135 the UFC Henry Cejudo he missed a couple of a his I would say more than a couple a lot at 25 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was, I think that's obviously one of the reasons why he's at 35. But I remember when he was transitioning in uh, before he even fought in the UFC, I was following him because, you know, the gold medal champ, he brings it up all the time. And I was like, yeah, but, but where's the discipline? Where's, where's the training? Nothing against the champ champ. Obviously he's a dominant fighter, but it's also like you, you know, you know this in wrestling. They don't fight overweight at all in wrestling. Not at all. Right. right? You make the weight or you're out. Now, now, you said you had wrestling. What was your wrestling background? Um, uh, or just, pre, what is your pre-MMA background? Wrestling. I just wrestled in high school. Nothing okay. crazy. Well, what got you into BJJ or MMA? But what was that transition like for you? I know you made your pro debut in 08, which is 11 years ago, and you made your amateur debut in 07. So kind of mm-hmm. walk us through what got you into the amateur, you know, the training for amateur and what got you, you only took a couple amateur fights. You went pro in under a year or right around a year. So walk us through that progression because it was a quick progression for you. Yeah. So, so pretty much, um, how, how I got started was through friends at, at my job, which was a moving company. And a couple of my friends that I wrestled with in Mm. high school were doing jujitsu and at the time, I just got into a motorcycle accident. I got hit by a truck living in Florida, and I came home. And um, I was a troubled kid. You know, I got into a lot of trouble just doing stupid stuff, drinking and partying. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I ended up trying a jiu-jitsu class. Um, okay. And I broke my arm the very first class, and I fell in love with it ever since. Yeah. So, How did you break your arm in the first class? So I was rolling with another kid that I knew um, from the wrestling scene in New Jersey. And yeah. he, put, he put me in an Uma Plata and naturally sure. I just rolled out. And then he, he transitioned to an arm bar. And me arm being a jiu-jitsu, like, mm-hmm. I didn't really, you know, know the danger. And it was so fast in transition that my, my arm snapped. So right. I was pretty much a, a sling for the holidays and stuff like that. And, uh, the second that I was able to, to get back on the mat, man, I just, I hit it hard and I was training two to three times a day, five, six days a week and, um, competing, you know, really, really quickly in jujitsu after starting. And, um, you know, then I ended up, uh, leaving that school because it was primarily a jujitsu school and then finding, Uh, an MMA school that a lot of people migrated towards and that's pretty much how it all started. And I, I took my first amateur fight, not really fighting out of a school. It was more or less a bunch of guys getting together in a wrestling room and just kind of beating each other mm. up. No instruction, no sure. nothing. And, uh, I ended up losing and I hate losing. I hated losing in wrestling. I hate, I hate losing. I'm very competitive. And, um, so I lost my first amateur fight and I had to, I had to, you know, get better. So I actually, you know, got into a a legit school and I went on a four fight win streak and, um, I ended up competing against the same kid I lost to as an amateur. And we, we had a draw because back in the day at ring of combat, if you were making a debut, they put you on the undercard and the undercard was two, four minute rounds. So I ended up getting a draw with him. And, um, I got a rematch and I arm barred him. So, nice. and, uh, you know, from there on, it was just, it was just training all the time and just, uh, you know, I 
love to compete. I still do. And after I started training a little more jujitsu, I realized that I was a, a great teacher as well. And the professor was yeah. having me, you know, uh, help guys out because I just pick things up very naturally and I had the ability to break things down well. And, uh, so that mm -hmm. kind of started my, my teaching career, you know, as like a striped blue, blue belt helping out. And then mm. started teaching not full time, but mostly part time with uh, a couple days a week as a purple belt. And then I actually started running my own programs and curriculum as a brown belt. And, so, and how long have you been, how long have you been a full, cause now you're a full time uh, BJJ instructor, right? Yeah, I, I was um, up until recently. Now I've decided to open up my own academy. So I still teach down at uh, Nick mm -hmm. Catone's, and I'm still actively right. cornering a lot of the fighters. Um, right now I'm just kind of loaded up with like one-on-one -on -one lessons and uh, okay. doing a business plan and a build-out for my, my new academy. Hey, and, uh, Sean, I got a few questions for you. Um, I want to go back to the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. um, you see this, I think this is more prevalent in the, uh, in the heavier weight classes. Like um, you get to middleweight and on up where early on in uh, a fighter's career, um, they'll fight at, you know, a certain weight. And then as they progress through that and get older, because it's harder for their body to um, mm -hmm. come back, so to speak, um, yeah. with, with the weight cuts, they tend to move up mm -hmm. in, um, in weight class instead, or, or, you know, maintain that. But in general, if they're changing weight classes, it goes up. And I noticed in the beginning of your career, um, going all the way back to 2008, that you had a number of fights at Bantamweight at 135, and, the, and now you fight exclusively at 125. Is there a reason why um, you started out with that, or were you trying to figure out the weight cut and, um, and manage that at the time? Um, well, pretty much they didn't have a flyweight division back then, you mm. know? It really just got introduced. Yeah. I mean, there was like uh, maybe a handful of flyweights, but you really couldn't go anywhere as a flyweight, and it was very uh, difficult to get fights. So I was only walking around at 139 pounds. Um, when I fought some of these guys at 135, I weighed 132, 133, eating on the way to the wow. scale. Wow. Yeah. So like – Somebody like Aljamain Sterling, who I fought, I believe he stepped on the scale and he was 158. And I was like, that when he walked into the cage, I mean, the next day, I was 34 and a half when we fought. Yeah. That's a big difference. You know, I only, yeah. I step into the cage now and I'm only 132, 133 pounds after weighing 25, 26. I just, I don't have a big frame. I don't put a lot of weight on and I don't cut right. a lot of weight. But back then... It, it, I didn't have an option, you know, it was 135 or you don't fight, you know, or you sit and you wait. So just like yeah. then, in any fight that came to me, I fought, you know, my, my pro debut, I fought somebody that had, that was 10 and 0 as an amateur in Nick Pace who went on to fight in the UFC and he fought Demetrius Johnson in the WEC. That was my debut. Yeah. And I, like I did, I just didn't well, turn, you know, fought anybody. Your career, and I think this comes up a lot with, I mean, you've already had an over-decade career as a pro MMA fighter. It's dedication and determination because I, I haven't really interviewed anybody else who got their arm broken in the first time ever doing jiu-jitsu ever, 
and was like, that's what I want to do. You know, a lot of people would kind of turn away from something that gave them an injury. And, and then obviously you were, you were fighting guys. Uh, I was going to point that out uh, that you lost both your amateur debut, which you covered because you weren't really training at an MMA gym. You also lost your pro debut. And I pointed out to show that overcoming obstacles actually makes you better. Too oh, often yeah. the people that start out with an easy hit a bump later and then they can't handle it. How, how do you mentally keep going through those tough times? Because your starting training broke your arm. Your first amateur fight you lost. Your first pro fight you lost. What's about you that keeps overcoming these obstacles that others might just say, it's you know, that's not for me? You also look at it. My second fight was a draw. So I started out my pro career 0-1-1. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one and one. Yeah. Um, it's oh, just one combination. One. I love to compete, you know, and I like to challenge myself. So, you know, it, it, it was never a matter of giving up because I lost the fight or anything like that. It was a matter mm. of fixing what I did wrong and working to be better. Um, and, and that's really what I've kind of um, like pride myself on is, is being a better fighter, not so much always uh, constantly thinking about winning and losing. But, you know, how mm. do I make myself a, a more overall better fighter? And how am I going to get better just a little bit each and every day? So I think that that's more or less what I concentrate on rather than, like, the winning and, and losing aspect, you know? I still have the fire well, in that's me. Well, actually – I'm trained, yeah. you know, and I'm going to continue regardless if I go on a four-fight losing streak. I'm still going to wake up and continue to fight – um, you know, until I lose that fire in me. Mm. Great attitude, great attitude to have. Now you had mentioned a little bit earlier in one of your comments that you had at one point been full-time BJJ instructor at Nick Catones, which is a, a really well-known um, pro, uh, develops a lot of great pro fighters and amateur fighters. Um, but also you had mentioned that you're going to be starting, you're in the process, you, you know, you're in the process of starting your own Jim, what can you tell us about that? What's, what's the goal? What's the goal? What, when it gets set up and running, what would you like to see come out of you running your own gym? What's the plan going to be? Is it going to be just BJJ? Is it going to be a full MMA gym? What's, what, what's your plan? Yeah, so it's going to be a full MMA gym. Um, I'm still going to be teaching the, um, you know, one or two nights a week down at uh, Nick Catone's. I actually used to teach okay. full-time um, at Miller Brothers in Sparta. Oh, Miller? Yeah, so I'm still I'm still teaching and helping out down at uh, Brick Township down at Nicotones at his uh, super facility, and um, I'm gonna I'm hoping to be opening up by the end of this this year if everything goes well in my mm -hmm. old hometown of uh, of Bud Lake and Flanders um, in Mount Olive Township. But I'm definitely gonna be offering everything um, classes mm -hmm. for men, women, children. Um, you know, it's going to be a full MMA gym. I'm going to have some fitness classes. Um, really going to concentrate, obviously, on on jujitsu. Um, but sure. we're going to be offering something for everybody. So we have a really good game plan going in, and I have a really good group of guys helping me with the business. Um, and I'm I'm kind of learning as we go. I'm getting um, about four to six hours a week, pretty much a, a business mm. class from some of my. Um, my students and clients that I have that are, are taking time out of their busy day to, to educate me, to make sure that, you know, I'm successful on the business end. So I'm super grateful to them. And I think we got this figured out and I think it's going to be a great, um, you know, a great addition to my, 
career and moving forward something that I can give back to the community. It's a great attitude to have. Also, something you brought up in your fight career that you also just demonstrated in your professional or business career is surrounding yourself with a great team and being teachable. I mean, yeah. that, you, you cannot stress that enough. Just as a human being, even if you're 75 in the fight game, not in the fight game, whatever it is, surrounding yourself with the right people, the right team, and to be teachable, no matter how many titles you win, um, like you said, you, you don't look at it as – I just want the external. You say, am I getting better? What's going to make me better? And that's, that, that there's not a ton of humility that, that comes out of fighters. I mean, I think a lot of fighters, you know, kind of build up their arrogance, but I think it's, it's very good as a person to have the willingness to learn from others and also surrounding themselves with a good team. And a shout out to those people, like you said, that are taking time out of their day to mentor you and to help you be the best, you know, gym, gym owner and business a business owner you could be. And I think that's part of MMA, the culture of MMA, the culture of BJJ and training that some people that just watch pay-per-views don't necessarily see the teamwork, the family dynamics, the interaction between uh, the people and the desire to make people better. And I think yeah. that's a big part. Some, some camps don't have that. The best camps do have that, right? And that kind of sounds like what you're doing. Do you have a name picked out for your gym? And is, if so, can you share it? Or are you holding off on saying the name until you do the, uh, the opening day? No, no. It's going to be Santella Mixed Martial Arts. So okay. pretty, pretty simple. I'm sticking with my name, you know. Um, sure. I want to keep it going, keep my brand going. Um, sure. You know. It's in my hometown, so my name still holds a lot of weight. I'm still active in the community. I still have a lot of ties there from, from uh, high school and from friends and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. You know, I'm going to start small and then hopefully one day, uh, you know, create something a lot bigger like, like Nick did. But, again, after mm -hmm. talking to a lot of uh, friends, family, and my support group, you know, we, we came up with a great game plan and a great way to attack it. And I'm super, super excited for the future with it. You know, I, I feel like, um, like in the early eighties with, uh, you know, the gold medal winning, uh, ice hockey team at Lake Placid hockey took off. And, you know, prior to that, you could, you know, walk into any neighborhood and you would see kids playing baseball, pick up a game literally almost every day of the summer. And then hockey took off. And then like somewhere in the, uh, early 90s, early to mid 90s, soccer became um, popular. And we hear the term soccer mom all the time. And, and now I feel like that's where uh, MMA is and B BJJ and a lot of gyms popping up and a lot of kids getting into that. I, I we definitely wish you a lot of success um, in that. I know it's not an easy thing to, uh, to take on. You are the one who's taking everything onto your back so to speak, yeah. just like you do when you go into the ring, it's all you. I'm sure you're going to have a you know, pretty, pretty strong supporting cast with you, but it's, it's nothing easy uh, to do to, uh, to be a business owner. Yeah, so. no, 100%. I'm excited and I'm willing to take on that challenge. You know, like I said, I'm always up for a challenge and, uh, you know, it's yeah. a, another step, you know, uh, towards like an ultimate goal. When I first got into it, I didn't, I didn't see myself fighting. I didn't see myself teaching. I kind of did it. It got me out of trouble and well, it kept me out of trouble, meaning yeah. it took up most of my time. And it was a passion I fell in yeah. love with. I'm just fortunate now to, to possibly be able to, 
to make a, a living off of something I love to do and also be able to give back and, and help people be better people all around with martial arts. So I wanted to go back to the fight game. Um, another question for you regarding um, your uh, division. You fight at 125 flyweight. And, I, I, you know, we have um, Dana White's Contender Series going on now. Um, the first week just occurred uh, yesterday, I believe. Um, he does it every – I think they – I don't know if it's called Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. So um, – I looked at, they have, um, every week you can see a list of fights already booked, um, except for week 10, the last week, there's nothing booked yet, but, um, all the way through, you can see who's fighting and, um, what their, um, weight class is. And the one thing that really jumped out at me, um, was there so far for, um, the first, um, six full weeks that they have scheduled, and then uh, weeks seven, eight, and nine are light, and I'm sure they're going to be adding on. There is not one single flyweight fight scheduled. Um, yeah. And then, you know, going – so I, I thought, I wonder if this is, like, happening inside of the UFC itself with its pay-per-views and with um, the fight nights. And I went back to the beginning of this year. So for 2019, they've only had six um, – six fights scheduled or fought in the flyweight division. Um, and mm -hmm. you have all obviously been on the radar for Dana um, and the UFC because, you know, you were supposed to fight back in 2016. You were supposed to fight, uh, was it Wilson Hayes? And, um, and, you know, just like Luke mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Everywhere that you can have a ranking for your weight class outside of the oh. UFC or Bellator, you're ranked number one. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, what could you possibly do at this point to get back to that opportunity with, with the UFC? Is that something you're seeking out or, um, you know, you're going to go elsewhere with, uh, with MMA? Yeah, I mean, you're always seeking out that. That's usually the ultimate goal, you know. But, you know, if it comes, it comes. If not, you know, unfortunately, my weight class, They've been up in the air yeah. about either getting rid of it, keeping it. You know, now that, that Henry uh, kind of supposedly what they're saying is save the division, you don't really know if that's true or not. Um, yeah. Because they pretty much let go of half their roster. They only have a handful of guys. Yeah. So yeah. you don't really know what, what they're doing. Um, you know, I have people on, on my half, you know, reaching out and seeing what's going on and, you know, seeing what the issue is with, with possibly getting me in. But, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit around and wait. You know, I'm an active fighter. I was uh, yeah. contracted to Brave last year, and I was supposed to have four fights in, by uh, in a year, and they got me one. And I kept having opponents pull out and fall through, so they were nice enough to let me fight out of contract. So regardless, I'm gonna continue fighting. You know, I love fighting, whether mm -hmm. it's regionally for a big promotion. Like I'm gonna continue fighting. Uh, regardless whether the UFC is interested or not. Obviously, I, I want to test myself against the best guys in the world. I don't necessarily agree that the best guys in the world are all in the UFC. I think there's awesome Correct. matchups yeah. outside of the UFC. So we're going to explore those options as well. You know, um, I just feel like regionally, I've outgrown it years and years ago, but I keep falling oh. back on the regional scene because nobody else can find me fights. 
and big promotions are either not interested or they have guys that turn me down. So, you know, yeah, uh, that was going to be my, my next question. Um, with your ranking, with your record, um, you fought for a number of uh, different promotions. How hard is it to get somebody um, matched up against you because of because of what you bring to the table? I mean, it, it can't be easy for uh, for you and your team, and you know, for that promotion. Oh, it's yeah, it's hard. It's every fight. That's why I take whatever fight comes, because you know, a lot of people talk a lot of crap on social media and they call you out, but then when it's time to fight, they disappear. They don't sign the contract or they do something right. stupid. So, you know, it, it's very difficult. And other promotions outside of the East coast, they don't want to bring me in because of my record. I got to fight their top guy. And yeah. why do you want to bring an outsider in from across the country to smash your local ticket seller? You know, yeah, so that becomes an issue. So, you know, unfortunately I've been, I fought everybody on the East coast. Like there's nobody left. They're flying yeah. people in from Costa Rica. They're flying people in from Brazil. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. I, I try to fight guys that, that were in the UFC to prove that I should be there. I should have been there a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Even those guys turned me down, you know? So I was fortunate to be able to test my, my skills against, um, you know, Naoki, which was a great fight. But again, that fight I dominated. So it just goes to show that I belong there. Yeah. And that's a kid that should still be in the UFC. And if they weren't getting rid of the division, they would have kept him because he only went one and one and he lost a split decision to Matt Schnell. So like that kid right. should, should have still been in there. And I, you know, I worked him, you know, like I was never in danger. Yeah. You know, I dominated him, you know, so it's just hard for me to find fights. And even the guys that are coming out of the UFC. They don't. They want to. They want to get back there. So they kind of want to pad their way right. back. They want some easy fights. I'm not an easy fight for anybody at in in the world at 125 pounds. Yeah, you know? you're bringing you're bringing up a good point. That's a problem. I mean, obviously, it's your main problem because you are by far the greatest non-major um, MMA fighter. I mean, I I I think that's fairly obvious with all the rankings and all your experience and your example of just beating that former UFC guy um, that would still be in the UFC if they weren't downsizing. I think it's a big thing for fighters to recognize. And, and you brought up that getting fights to actually occur um, is challenging. I, I would encourage you. And hopefully you mentioned, I think it's a good thing to point out because a lot of our listeners might only consider the UFC, but particularly in lighter weight classes prior to the UFC buying WEC. WEC was a lighter weight class. I mean, they had tons. There's a lot of, a lot of the great champs that came out, you know, your Vida Faber, all those guys, they all came, Dominic Cruz, they all came from WEC. I am considering in my brain, maybe this is wrong champ. You can correct me. You're the champ, but I would consider one FC to be sort of like the WEC was where they, because you know, the average Chinese person is, is probably not quite Asian person is probably not quite as big. And they, they kind of specialize in the lower weight classes. Um, has that come? Is that an option for you? Given the fact that they just got the first ever trade in, in the history of the UFC was to get DJ over there. And the guy he beat was a stud. I mean, they've got lots of talented 125ers. And I think with your ability and the fact that you haven't been able to fight people um, in a bigger promotion is, is Asia and want to see something that you would jump at. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and having Eddie Alvarez as part of the team, you know, yeah. I, I've spoken to him and stuff yeah. like that. The problem is they don't want to bring in like foreigners, you know, like they, uh, they have Demetrius and they have Eddie. So other than that, right. they, they're not really bringing anybody in, you know, um, whether they want to develop their own, their own people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Whether it's a cost efficient because it costs money to fly me in a corner sure. out there and then they got to pay me, they could probably make more money off of a local guy fighting. Um, yeah. So that, that seemed to be the issue. Now the new issue is from the articles I was reading is that they're not dealing with any managers that are outside of like the Singapore one FC area. Yeah. So now it's even going to be harder um, unless they come to some type of agreement with that, you know? Um, so would I fight? And it's there? not just that the, the managers had to be in the Asian area for, I think three years. It was yeah. a requirement. You're yeah, right. Yeah. That, and, and that does seem to close them. They might be trying to close the flood from, um, the, the United States down a little bit by making it harder for, but I, I just think you deserve an opportunity like that. Given, given the fact that you, you have literally fought out, you have fought out of the regional scene for sure. But that, that is actually good insight. Either Jim or I knew that. Thanks for sharing that from, uh, from Eddie Alvarez's experiences. And, and obviously, I, I think they had gone with their big three, Eddie Alvarez, DJ, and Sage, although Super Sage is, is possibly done because of the, uh, the jaw reconstructive surgery. But, yeah, they kind of got those big three guys. And it sounds like from you that they're not really looking to, to, to feed people in from the United States. So uh, hopefully there's another big organization that, that will – give you the opportunity, maybe the UFC will, but I actually don't think, and, and this is just me, sometimes I talk out of turn, champ, but I don't think Henry Sauda saved 125. I think had he lost, I was actually hoping he would lose, not because I don't like him. I'm glad he's a champ champ. I, I'm glad all those things, but I wanted him to lose so that he kind of had to make 125, you know, had a fight, maybe three, four defenses, something like that before trying up again. I was hoping he would lose just to keep the pressure because he's the defending champ, keep the pressure on 125 as opposed to now that he's a 135-pound champ. I, I find it unlikely, just like just like Connor, 145 was super hard for him. He was all sucked in, massively sucked in. You talk about somebody getting sucked in, massively sucked in, a one at 55. And there, there, I, to me, there was no doubt in my mind that he wasn't ever going back to 145. And I think that's I would be shocked if, if Cejudo defends ever at 125, and I think they will still wrap the division up. So it's kind of, it's kind of a bit of a disappointment to have a talent as great as you. Um, but I think something you brought up as a champ and as a guy who looks deeper than just winning fights is self-improvement. And if you open your own gym, constantly uh, training and constantly developing yourself and also moving on to something that is another challenge, um, is good for you as a person. And I think that's something that a lot of fighters don't have. They don't have any concept of themselves outside of being a fighter. And I think it's very healthy for you to have a concept of who you are as a person more than just, uh, you know, a 13 time champ, which is incredible to even say 13 titles that that's a legendary career, but that's not who you are for the rest of your life. You still need to be Sean Santella and you still need to have a life that you enjoy. And, and I'm excited that you've got the, um, the coaching up what and, and this is a question I've asked coaches before nerve wise nerve wise would you rather be in the fight as a fighter that you can make the adjustments and the changes and the 
and the, um, you know, the things that you need to do? Um, or would you rather be a corner? Have you found times as a corner where it's difficult because you're not fighting or are there times as a corner you're, you're excited to be a corner because you can point out what the fighter isn't seeing? What's, what's kind of the excitement level and the energy level where you are? Uh, I mean, I enjoy both of them, but I get more nervous when my students fight and I'm in the corner. I think because really? when I fight yeah. personally, I get in the zone, you know, so mm. mentally I'm, I'm focused and the nerves are there, but they're not as bad because I'm so focused on my fight and being in the mm. zone where right. when I'm, when I'm in that zone, you know, because I'm not the one that's actually fighting. It's, it's, it's a teammate, a friend somebody that, you know, yeah. you, you have that bond with and you've uh, put time in. So I, I enjoy, um, you know, corner and obviously it makes me a lot nervous. Um, but yeah, if it comes to, you know, uh, which one are you a less nerve wrecking over? It's me being in there, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. But I enjoy them both well, that's it's a different, you know, like it's a, it's, yeah. it's a different, uh, game i guess so to speak when you're outside of the cage and you're seeing things come mm -hmm. and you're you know you're helping a fighter than when you're in there mm -hmm. you know um but they're they're definitely both great you get a different feeling to me from from each one absolutely it's something that you pointed out towards the beginning of our conversation where you said that when you were a blue belt and you started teaching bjj that a lot of it was because you could point out ways to get better. And, and, um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't recognize that just because somebody's great at any sport, it could be catching a football, it could be throwing a football, it could be shooting a basketball, whatever it is. Um, in your case, fighting, that doesn't necessarily make that same person a great coach. Like Michael Jordan is not a great coach. At least he hasn't been. I think he's tried a little bit. If you're a Phillies fan like me, Mike Schmidt, I don't know if that name means anything to you, but Mike Schmidt, a legendary Hall of Famer third baseman, he in the early thousands tried to be a coach. He went down, the, 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 the Phillies hired him, and it really, I'm not talking trash from Mike Schmidt, but, but I'm just saying, it turned out that he just wasn't really a good coach, despite the fact that he was an incredible right. Hall of Fame uh, player. And I think it's something that I want to point out to our audience that this is another sport. Being a coach is another right. skill level. It's it's its own thing. I'm not saying it's harder, easier than fighting. Obviously, fighting is the most you know it, it's live. But I, I think people forget that being a corner. And sometimes you can find some great YouTube videos of the worst corner advice. And I always think the worst corner advice is like punching more. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's yeah. just terrible. You gotta like that one, right? Um, how about yeah. the the female UFC fighter that was getting like trashed and her don't quit. I mean, it made no sense. Like there's, there's sometimes where you can tell that the corner people, the corner coaches really aren't at their game. And so what's been something that has improved your game as a corner coach? What's a, what, what's, what's something that has made you over your time of cornering a better corner? Um, I, I would honestly say that it, it's, um, it's, it's, it's my mentors, the people that I've, um, actually, yeah kind of learn from and Brian McLaughlin and, and Nick Catone and stuff like that. So, mm. um, you know, I think, I think that, and, and honestly, I just think it's, it's, um, cause you gotta, you gotta treat everybody different. You can't corner everybody the same. Some people yeah. they need to be screamed at to motivate them. Other people, you gotta kind of like coddle them and be like, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. You're doing great, but you got to talk differently, you know? So yeah. it's, it's really just, it's more than just, 
you know, being a fighter myself and, and cornering them how I want to be cornered. You know, everybody, mm. everybody has a different fighting style. Everybody reacts differently. And so you have to treat them differently. You know, so if, if you treat everybody the same, you're not going to get the same result. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's more in depth. And that's something that I've learned through the years and, and through, um, you know, my coaches and, and it comes with the experience, you know? Um, but I think that's the major thing is, is not cornering everybody the same and cornering everybody like, like you're fighting, you know, just like yeah. you can't train everybody the same way. Like if you're doing a, mm-hmm. a, a private lesson, you know, you got to cater to that person. I can't train them like as if I'm training myself because everybody's, you know, a, at a different level, physically, mentally, you know, spiritually and everything. You know, you got to, as a good coach, yeah. you need to adjust to each individual person. And that's the same thing. I think that's a great point. Helpful. Yeah, that's a great thing to point out. Just like as a fighter, you have to change your game plan to – the opponent as a coach, even though that's not your opponent, that's your teammate. But as a coach, you have to adjust your game plan as far as coaching strategy to each. And have you ever cornered two different people on the same night? Yeah, I've, uh, multiple times. I've cornered two multiple, people on the same because, night that I fought. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, it, well that's, a, that's probably a pure example of the mindset difference you fought and cornered two. But the reason why I brought that up is because you, you had to switch your brain from fighter to coach that fits fighter A and then coach that fits fighter B. And I think that's something that if, if our listeners ever watch corners, it's very important because I, I do think that one of the disadvantages of the Bobby Knights, I know I'm talking about basketball now, but sometimes coaches just get in a rut. And if it works yeah. once, they're just going to coach that way, whether it's yelling, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is, and they just get in a rut. And I think that's something that um, – everybody needs to recognize that a good coach is somebody that finds the way that works for each individual athlete. And I think that's something that right now, Doug Peterson from the Eagles seems to have been able to do that. And and as a backup quarterback before, there's a lot of interviews with him talking about how he's learned to be very good at, at coaching each person individually, as opposed to some of the, some of the loud screaming uh, NFL coaches that just, I would, I'll throw out John Gruden that just kind of tries to coach everybody the same way. And so I think that's a very good thing for you to point out. We, we here at MMA uh, FanCast wish you the best, not only in your fight career, and we do want you to, uh, to, to get those fights and continue to fight at a very high level, but we also want, wish the best for you in opening up Santella MMA. We do want to kind of plug the fact that you are doing a guest seminar in the D.C. area this coming Saturday, only yep. a couple of days away by the time this airs, uh, June 22nd. It's open to the public. I think it's $10 for kids and $20 for adults. Yep. Um, I think so. So it, 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 throw that gym name out real quick. Talk about it a little bit. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, one of my first black belts, Mike Pagano, he um, – he teaches at a few a few schools up in the uh, Maryland D.C. area, so um, it's at it's at his school. You guys can uh, check out my social media. We've been tagging it all over. It's gonna it's a two hour seminar on um, Saturday. I'm actually gonna be heading up there Friday. It's in Waldorf, Maryland, um, but you guys can check it out. Um, you can get in touch with him directly for pre registering or just signing up, and uh, it's open to everybody. 
you know? So it's, uh, this is the second seminar up there. I got plenty of space, got some great stuff to show and, uh, it's going to be a great time. So definitely, definitely check it out. Um, you can get on my social media and get more details if, if you want, or, uh, you can reach out to Mike Pagano as well up there. Um, but it's, it's great. It's, it's going to be fun. Well, that's definitely something that's exciting about you, uh, champ, is that it's not just being a champ. It's not just being great yourself, that the passion is really about the sport and helping people get better at BJJ. And I think that's a mindset that's, that gives you longevity in the sport, not just, can I be good, but can I make other people good? Cause that's actually harder. Um, and thanks so much for being a guest on our show. You've been, you've been great giving us insights into, into your background into some of the fight stuff, in, into your upcoming gym. Uh, we definitely wish you the best here. Um, at this point, Jim and I are going to say uh, signing off. That's it, Fort Pitt. Thanks so much. We'd love to have you back on, Champ, if you ever get a, get a chance to come back on and talk about the opening of your, of your gym. But, uh, but for now, that's it, Fort Pitt. Thanks again. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Sean.